2: You are the most sorry-looking bunch of planets I ever laid my eyes on. Neptune, you're wobbling again. My God, I'd trade any one of you for a big piece of ice crapped out by the next passing comet. <laughs> Jupiter, you fat tub of goo! You call that an orbit? You're supposed to be going 29,000 miles an hour! Excuse me, son. What is it, Mercury? Uh, it's just... You're kind of tough on the big guy. He's got 67 moons with him. He's going as fast as he can. Gee, Mercury, that's a... That's a great point. He's got so many moons, I should just ignore that bulge in his equator and just, you know, let him go at his own pace. Yeah, son. Thanks so much for listening to me. No problem. I really value your input. Now get back into your orbit before I fry you into a pork rind, you ugly-ass, crater-faced piece of cosmic junk! Listen up, everybody. Apparently some of you sorry little gas bags are under the impression that I'm interested in your opinions, a-, a misconception that really boils my plasma. Maybe you didn't notice, but this is called the solar system, not the Saturn system or the Uranus system. The Uranus system is what my solar wind comes out of, and with the mood I'm in, you'll be lucky if I'm not shooting out supersonic particles at you for the rest of the day. Now, does anybody else have anything to say? No? Crickets? Crickets? Anybody want to bring up Pluto's status again? Hmm? 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 Good. Then sit on your orbits and rotate. Stay in your lanes. And when I want your opinions in a billion years or so, I'll ask. Everybody shut up because there's a whole show about me starting. And now he had a coronal mass ejection last night. Colin McEnroe.
3: Well, you know, a coronal mass ejection sounds kind of, uh, you know, uh, Uh, sounds a little obscene, actually, but it isn't. We're going to explain everything uh, to you, including apparently what a crabby person the sun actually is. Uh, This is an entire show about the sun. We're going to look at it across a bunch of different platforms and disciplines, starting with astronomy and moving into um, our own kind of anthropological engagement with the sun, why it has been a source of worship and what kind of source of worship it's been. Towards the end, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the sun can do for us, like it's not already doing enough. Uh, We're going to talk a a little bit more about solar energy and even about the notion that human beings could be effectively hacked so that they became a little bit more photosynthetic. Uh, Is this possible? Spoiler, probably not. But there's some other interesting ideas that go along with that idea. So uh, that's the game plan. But we do want to talk about what the sun is. Uh, It turned out as we were getting ready for this show I realized I didn't really know that much about the sun. It just, It's just out there beaming down on me. So Sarbani Basu, professor and chair of the astronomy department at Yale, where she specializes in solar and stellar astrophysics, is joining us from the Yale studios. Uh, and she's going to give us a short course uh, on the sun. Uh, first of all, welcome to our show
0: thank you it 's a pleasure to be here
3: um, most of us don 't maybe think about the sun every day or study the sun very much, but the sun's being studied all the time right There are s- uh, solar telescopes, solar arrays there have been probes that go near the sun there are satellites and skylab things that that look at the sun. Are we still getting data about the sun all the time?
0: indeed, and there are special missions just to observe the sun, continuously monitor the sun. And there are missions that are looking at particular aspects of the sun, particularly things like the coronal mass ejection that you talked about. And there are other missions which simply observe the sun day after day, day after day, just to study what the sun does over months and years, because we need to know. It affects us.
3: We'll talk about what the sun will ultimately do uh, as we uh, head towards the middle part of this conversation. But maybe just to begin, what is the sun? I mean, that sounds like kind of a stupid question, but what's it made, up, made out of? What, what is the sun?
0: So, the sun is actually our nearest star. It's simply a ball of gas, most of it is hydrogen. But the sun has been converting hydrogen to helium long enough that inside the core, it's only about 33% hydrogen. The the rest has been converted to helium. Uh, We are lucky that the sun is a small, not very heavy, boring star, because small, boring stars live very, very long. And we're also lucky that the sun is not the most active of stars. By active... I mean phenomena like the coronal mass ejections, massive flares, and uh, other energetic uh, phenomena that could happen. There are stars which are far more active than the sun. We wouldn't like to live around them. There are uh, stars that are very heavy. We wouldn't like to live around those either. So I think we're in a Goldilocks situation.
3: Right. The, the Goldilocks star is uh, something exactly. they, do, they do indeed call it. So um, the, the sun has been uh, obviously studied at least as far back as Galileo. It's been a s- subject of scientific interest. Do we know everything that there is to know about the sun, or are there s- things that you as an astronomer uh, still regard as mysteries?
0: We know the gross features. We know the sun as a star, in the sense, we know what the sun will do in, say, 2 billion years' time, 3 billion years' time, maybe 4, 5. The problem is we don't know very well what the sun will do, say, 10 days from now. Mm-hmm. And the short-time scale, uh, short scale phenomena is all to do with magnetic fields, which are notoriously difficult to study. And so almost all of uh, solar astrophysics today deals with trying to understand the magnetic fields and magnetic phenomena that happen in the sun. And it's these that cause these flares and ejections, incidentally.
3: Well, we've used the terms like this a couple of times, uh, mass ejections and flares. Maybe it makes some sense to explain to people. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in some ways the sun is this beautifully perfect sphere, and then it's got all this other stuff going on uh, in it or on it or from it, uh, irregularities, we might call them. So what are some of the things that the sun can do uh, in that regard?
0: Okay, so the the first uh, clue that the sun wasn't really perfect, but it in quotes, came from the fact that people saw spots on them. So the modern study of these sunspots, as we call them, because they are basically uh, spots on the sun, started with Galileo, because you really need a telescope to do it, and caused a bit of a stir, because, of course, the heavens are supposed to be perfect, and these ugly dots on the sun didn't quite jive with that philosophy. But Galileo and the others did manage to show that the sunspots have to be solar phenomena. And over the years, people have found that these number of sunspots increase and decrease in a cyclical manner. It's with a period of roughly 11 years, and that's what we call the solar cycle or sunspot cycle. It's also called the activity cycle cycle. Though it wasn't actually till the first decade of the 20th century in 1908 or 1909 that people discovered that sunspots are actually magnetic spots on the sun, that they have strong magnetic fields. It's then you could... uh, That's the date when modern solar astrophysics started, I would say, realizing that sunspots have these magnetic fields. Now sunspots appear, disappear, sometimes large sunspots can erupt, and if the eruption is mainly electromagnetic, meaning light X-ray UV, we call it a flare, but very often there's so much energy that it can accelerate protons and electrons which the solar plasma is made of, and those charged particles permeate the interplanetary medium. So... All the planets are basically bombarded with that. So that's a coronal mass ejection. It's a technical name because most of it comes from the very outer layer of the sun, which we don't normally see except in an
3: eclipse. Hey, can we just talk for a second about that outer layer, the corona? It, it's, am I correct that it's actually hotter than the sun's surface for some reason?
0: Yes, indeed. In, in fact, it's a few million degrees. So and the reason was a bit of a mystery till people figured out about uh, magnetic fields and it's not very long ago that people discovered exactly how the energy is transmitted from the the photosphere which is the layer that we see to the corona so it's uh, without the magnetic field we wouldn't have a corona
3: and, and the, the magnetic poles also flip every 11, 11 years? I don't know if that's part of the cycle you were talking about before.
0: So the maximum of the solar cycle, where we have the most number of sunspots, that's when the pole flips. Mm. And interestingly, they don't always flip at the same time. You could have the North Pole converted to the South Pole while the South Pole is still waiting to become the North Pole. Hmm. In fact, asymmetry is quite normal.
3: Well, you say that, but there's something something alarming about that. Uh, depending on given how dependent we are on the sun, uh, so I'd like it all to be a lot more regular than the way that you're uh, describing it. So these these flares, the the more electrified we got down here the more important or least important to us these flares became. Otherwise, they might be very interesting to astronomers, but not necessarily to those of us who are essentially earthbound. But certainly starting in the 19th century, these flares had the capacity somehow to vastly disrupt um, any kind of electronic communication. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that.
0: So, yes, in fact, the... Effects of these solar phenomena on human beings, uh, they date back to the technological era. Well, it depends on how you define technology. The first effects were seen on telegraph wires. So even in the middle of the 19th century, the 1850s and onwards, when there were particularly England was uh, completely networked with telegraph wires, telegraph uh, wires. <coughs> That's when people realized that there's sometimes extra noise in telegraph wires, which it's, people took a while for people to realize that was caused by the sun. Uh, the biggest event, the, the strongest solar phenomena that is recorded is the so-called Carrington event, named after Richard Carrington, who observed it in uh, 1859, uh, he observed this gigantic flare, which actually produced so much light that they could observe it. This was the time, of course, that people didn't know that these flares were associated with magnetic fields. But very soon after, a geomagnetic storm was observed on this, uh, on Earth. And that's when the telegraph wires were... Overloaded, it was noisy, and then people began to realize that geomagnetic storms on earth are actually caused by things on the sun and then of course, nineteen o eight people discovered uh, george er- george Ellery Hale actually i shouldn't just say generic people discovered <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hale is the father of solar, in some sense, the father of solar physics, he discovered magnetic fields in spots. And then the study of the Sun-Earth connection, as it's called, or these days it's so called space weather, came because um, it affects the interplanetary medium, it affects technology, because a big flare can have enough energy to heat up the atmosphere, which causes extra drag on satellites. It changes the ionosphere, which means it can change radio communication. In fact, um, two days ago, The American Geophysical Union put out a press release that in May 23, 1967, an all out war between the US and Soviet Union was just averted because people realized that. uh, So, what had happened was uh, early warning systems, which were based, uh, which were radar based in the Arctic Circle, they all were jammed. And that's considered, I mean, that would be, if the Soviet Union wanted to attack the U.S., that would be one of the things they'd do at first. But the Air Force had been studying the sun-earth connection and geomagnetic phenomena related to the sun for about a decade by then, and the scientists had managed to persuade the generals that, no, it's the sun doing the jamming, not the Soviet Union. So that was a narrow squeak, if the paper is anything to go by. The paper has been accepted, Uh, in the journal called Space Weather, but I haven't quite read it and not exactly sure who the authors are. Apparently the data have just been declassified. So so that was danger averted.
3: However, we're not always out of danger, right? One of the things that we know is that at some point solar activity may really significantly shut down power on Earth, maybe cause kind of a cascading uh, collapse of electrical grids. I assume that's one of the reasons we watch the sun as closely as we do.
0: That's one of the reasons because, uh, uh, in fact, we've had power outages because of solar storms before. And the most notable recent one was 1989 in Quebec. That was a big solar storm. It overloaded the power grid, and they had a very, very widespread power outage. There was uh, some localized power outages in the U.S. at that time, but not too much. The danger is transformers getting blown up because that would be catastrophic both economically and, you know, how many days would power be shut off? So if we had an early warning system and you could basically shut off the power grid for a few minutes or hours uh, deliberately, so bring it down safely, we'd probably be okay. But you need to monitor for that. The other danger, again, is communications. We're all dependent on cell phones, which depend on satellites. And satellites are sitting so high above the Earth's atmosphere where the, uh, there isn't too much of the Earth's magnetic field to protect it that they can get fried by solar particles.
3: Um, you know, I feel as though we are talking not unsurprised, not surprisingly, and and not unreasonably uh, about the the human effects on of solar activity. But it seems a little selfish when you consider how long that thing has been up there doing what it does. It's what about four and a half billion years old, and it's I think used up about half of its hydrogen. Um, so, what, what's in store for the sun? What's what's the rest of the sun's lifespan look like?
0: So it's going to basically continue as it is for another 5 billion years or so. That'll be how long it takes to exhaust the rest of the helium in the solar core. Then what'll happen is, given that there's no source of energy in the core, the core will start collapsing slowly. And this then, if you work out the physics, means that the outer layers will start expanding and the star will become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger till it'll start getting really large, a hundred to a thousand times bigger than what the size of the sun is today, maybe even more, and it'll become what's known as a red giant. Uh, Red because it's going to become cooler, a giant because it's going to be a humongous star. So Betelgeuse is a red giant, for example. Mm. Um, Now, of course, that's six billion years into the future. It's a perfectly normal fate for a solar-like star like the sun. We have observed other stars which are very similar to the sun, except much older. They're like that. So at some point, as the core collapses because of gravitational energy release, the core will become hot enough to start helium fusion. So helium will fuse to give carbon. So helium fusion will keep the sun alive for a a bit longer. But the sun is not heavy enough that at the end of helium fusion, it can do anything. That's the end of the sun's life, really. So the core of the sun will collapse till it becomes dense enough to become what we call a white dwarf. So white dwarfs are these... Tiny, crystalline remnants of low-mass stars like the sun. And uh, they're basically carbon and oxygen, so think of a gigantic diamond if you wish. The outer layers will dissipate into the interstellar medium, and the core will remain as a white dwarf, and that's basically what the sun will end up uh, end up as.
3: When we say tiny, it's going to be what? about Maybe about the size of the Earth, right?
0: Yes, exactly.
3: And and what will it weigh relative to the Earth?
0: It'll it'll still weigh cl- closer to what the sun weighs mm-hmm. now than the Earth does because the sun is not—I mean, it's going to lose its outer layers, but most of the mass of the sun is in the core anyway. Mm-hmm. So it'll still be almost as heavy as the sun, mm-hmm. not completely, but yeah, much heavier but much smaller.
3: So is it, and, is it because we are a Goldilocks uh, star and, and a boring star that we're not going to go out as a champagne supernova?
0: Precisely. You have to be— much heavier uh 10 at least 10 times if not more the the actual number is a bit fuzzy depends on quite a few assumptions but yeah 10 to 20 times as heavy as the sun to have a spectacular supernova
3: i i don't know about you i find like it kind of comforting just to think of that you know beautiful little white dwarf sitting there out there at the end of the whole thing it's kind of a nice image
0: yeah, it's a nice image, and uh, though you have to sort of think of that most of the mass of the sun will be locked up in the white dwarf, while if you have a lovely supernova, you get extra material to to build the next uh, set of stars and build planets around them and build things like us. I mean, every, all the chemicals in our body were cooked up in some star or the other.
3: Right. We are stardust. We literally are stardust. stardust yes. yeah. Sarbani Basu, this has been great. Uh, I'd love to take one of your courses. Uh, you're a great teacher, uh, professor of astronomy at Yale, where she does specialize in solar and stellar astrophysics. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much. It was uh, a pleasure.
3: We're going to come back after this. We're going to go back to the Yale Broadcast Center, uh, where we're going to talk about a very different uh, way of relating to the sun, uh, less scientific and more belief-centered. We're honey-
4: but you're a nine
3: All right, we're back. We've been talking uh, about the sun as a scientific entity. Now we're going to talk about how mankind or humankind has looked at the sun, uh, what it has um, thought about the sun. So uh, we're going to begin with John Grimm, also at the Yale Broadcast Center, professor at Yale University and an expert on religion and ecology. He's the author of Ecology and Religion, religion part of the Foundations of Contemporary Environmental Studies series. Uh, John Grimm, welcome to this conversation.
4: It's good to be with you, Colin.
3: And I heard you uh, and Sarbani Basu talking off the air. As you you brushed up your astronomy uh, a, a little <laughs> bit more. Uh, under the glow of her, her sun-like gaze. So, um, you know, one thing we, we do know is it would be easier to try to figure out an early religion that didn't look at the sun as some kind of divine being. Egyptians, Meso- Mesopotamians, Aztecs, Inuits, uh, there's something going on at Stonehenge or, for my people, at Newgrange and, in Ireland. I mean, it was, is it nearly universal, at least in the early stages of, of religion, that the sun is some kind of deity?
4: I think that's a good uh, conjecture, a good position to to think about. It's a good question to ask, this uh, embeddedness of humans within natural processes and in relationship to that, the rising and setting of the sun would be a daily occurrence and would uh, bring people into some significant reflections upon life.
3: So, uh, give us a give us a, a few examples. I think probably the average person, when they think about sun worship, maybe they go to the Egyptians uh, first. So, how did the Egyptians understand this relationship? Well,
4: the name that's associated with the sun is Re, Ra, R A, sometimes pronounced Ra. But this uh, relationship to the sun is, if from the Old Kingdom, the oldest kingdom, uh, suggests. Uh, both royal power or imperial governance and also life and light. So that uh, sense of the human being embedded in relationship to the surrounding light of the sun uh, gives rise to very deep reflections upon personal relationships or who am I in relationship to this reality that I see around me and what is the society that I'm embedded in and I, I find myself uh, thinking also of uh, archaeoastronomy and those moments in which we find um solstice indications or daggers penetrating spirals that are embedded in rocks these are very old uh, images of how the human saw the uh, diminishment of the sun's light and then its return in relationship to their own life. So I I, uh, find increasingly a, a patterning of a fourfold embodiment, namely our bodies in relationship to these phenomena that we observe in the natural world. And by bodies, I mean my personal body, the social body, the ecological body, and the cosmological body that in the religious traditions, all four of these embodiments begin to find symbolic expression. So Re or Ra is uh, one of these expressions that has both a uh, governance or high authoritarian or elite uh, dimensions to it, but also among the the people themselves, a sense of healing. And this this continues, we find it in the, uh, say, the Apollo uh, symbolism of the, that deity in the Greek and Roman world, Apollo is such an interesting figure because, like Ra in the Egyptian context, they're they're life-giving, but they're also numinous dimensions. They're they're fascinating and fearful, and they also have the the capacity of uh, uh, a very attractive. They're very handsome. They're kouroi. They're the athletic youth, and so the Apollo figure also becomes one of the major images in the christian tradition that will give rise to the uh, person of jesus the imaging of jesus so also the buddha figure so the the halo around both the jesus and buddha figures is again this disc the sun disc and that same sun disc is a, so old in the egyptian context also as the the health and healing capacity of the sun so yes this very old imaging of human relationships to the sun in terms of a fourfold embodiment. eh?
3: Um, I want to come back to some of those cultures in a second, but, and I was going to wait before we get to the very uh, uneasy, at times, relationship between Christianity and sun worship. Uh, but uh, since you went there with the halos, we should talk about it a little bit more. I think what we, we see in iconography is is until maybe about the mid-fourth century uh, that we see Christ with this kind of sun disc-style ha- halo. For uh, and There's a resistance at first, and, and I'm assuming it's a two-fold resistance at minimum, one of them being... They would have. some of the Christians would have regarded anything heliocentric, anything really connected to the sun as maybe not Christian, maybe pagan, uh, to use the way that they would have thought about it. But also they were frequently accused of being sun worshippers, right? We know from Tertullian that there was this kind of whole notion, well, maybe they're sun worshippers. I mean, uh, even, you know, well, centuries beyond that, they're still burying their dead so that they, uh, they kind of sit up and look at the east, at the risen Christ. I mean, the, you can't Really, entirely get the sun out of Christianity as much as they might have tried.
4: Yes, Colin, I think that's a, an interesting relationship to explore. This sense that uh, the birthday of the infancy of Jesus is associated with the solstice, and some uh, place it on the uh, the day, the twenty fifth, end of the celebration of Sol Invictus, the Invincible Sun. Perhaps that's a relationship which is called into question now, but nonetheless, this solstice this this relationship and the the Apollo imagery and the uh, some of the very old Christian writers also making this relationship between Christ and light. Well, I, I say later Christian writers, but it's in John's Gospel, isn't it? This very close identity of the Logos, the Christ embeddedness in all reality. And so this uh, sun, a uh, heliocentric and Christocentric imagery continues in the Christian tradition. And again, I would like to reach back and see this as an ongoing expression, actually into the present. So I want to lean on uh, sarbani's uh, observations also about the sun and to explore this Fascination with our uh, the daily rising and setting of the sun and the natural processes brings us into the our present uh, effort to dialogue across the humanities and the sciences about these questions of who are we in relationship to these processes that we live within, and, and the Christian question of uh, sun worship I think is one expression of this also in the um, the moment of Copernicus is such a profound uh, question in the Christian tradition because of this uh, focus again on the earth as the center of reality and suddenly we see the sun at the center of our solar system and how it shook Christian identity uh, actually into the present, I believe. So these questions of Christianity and the sun are deep identity questions that I, I like to probe again in terms of fourfold embodiment. It raises questions about who we are as a person, as a society, our ecological relationships, our cosmological relationships. So religions are probing in their own ways of knowing, constantly probing these questions also.
3: Yeah, I always feel like the the three great intellectual revolutions of that kind were Copernicus saying uh, that God didn't put uh, humankind at the center of the universe, Darwin saying that God didn't really put uh, humankind in uh, a very special category, and Freud saying maybe God was actually exercising good taste in the first place. You know, maybe we're really not that nice yeah. anyway. Um, I want to add John Perlin to this conversation, but before we uh, put him in here, you know, the other thing I want to say about this is it's also impossible, I think, to— um, separate the Christian tradition from the Judaic tradition that uh, everything from the Old Testament flows into the New Testament. And just by chance, this Sunday, I my, my pastor, our listeners know this, but uh, my pastor has ALS and she's essentially lost the power of speech. And I, I'm helping her deliver a sermon this Sunday, uh, lending her my voice. And we're speaking on Psalm 19. You know, David would have lived outside all the time, John Grimm, in the way that you're kind of talking about in a way that You know, I mean, most of his life was, despite being a king, spent outdoors very much in the presence of all this. And so he says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and uh, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech there, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And here we go right here in them. He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy Uh, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them uh, and there is nothing hidden from its heat you know that last segment John that could be from any of the ancient religions we've been talking about that wouldn't be very different from from how the Greeks uh, or Aztecs or many of the indigenous uh, uh, American people would have thought about the sun.
4: Yes, you find it to this day, even uh, the emergence, re-emergence of we, the English term is used, Sundance among Northern Plains people, which refers to very different ceremonies among these people. But uh, the Crow people, Apsaloque people, as they call themselves, on the Northern Plains in Montana, the Crow people uh, have a celebration they call Ashkese Lisua, Dancing Lisua, and Ashkese, they dance in the the big lodge or the the cosmic lodge, and uh, for the Crow people, this is a renewal of themselves as a people of their bi- living among biodiversity. The animals are very clearly remembered, and the land itself. So here we have a, a resonance with the the psalm imagery also. And Colin, I, I'm reminded of this uh, late fifth uh, century writer, uh, often called Pseudo Dionysius, who who asked the question, why is it in the scriptures that we have these anthropocentric or human-like characteristics attributed to the divine? And his uh, his response was a, a striking phrase, dissimilar similarities. He was trying to come up with a phrase which would indicate... That these terms that are used for the divine are so limited, our language is so limited in the, in the face of these deep mysteries, and I hear those these mysteries even into sarbani's descriptions where we we know to a certain extent now, but we know there's so much more to be known, and our language is so limited and here was Pseudo-Dionysius in the sixth fifth century rather trying to indicate that we uh, we develop uh, uh, images and language which, which attempts to describe something beyond our comprehension. So this wonderful sense of the quest, the wonder, awe in the face of the natural world, that's, uh, to me, the foundational approach to all of these images in the religious traditions.
3: Um, we're going to add to this conversation John Perlin, a physicist at UCLA Santa Barbara and the author of Let It Shine, the 6,000-year uh, story of solar energy. So John Perlin, you know, the, the less benign description of how Christianity interacts with uh, solar power and with sun worship uh, is that, that at a certain point uh, in ways that maybe did manifest themselves in reactions to things people like Copernicus and Galileo, there's this kind of turning away from the sun in this sense that, eh, you know, the sun's not what it's all about. Uh, There's something else that it's all about. Uh, And in a way that I think you believe maybe we lost sight of all the things the sun really could do, that solar energy was already on the table to a certain degree 6,000 years ago.
1: Well, uh, 6,000 years ago, uh, the Chinese uh, began uh, building uh, to uh, keep their houses warm, by facing them towards the winter sun, uh, the Chinese fortunately did not have this uh, religious uh, bias uh, to uh, to yeah this 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 bias of uh, not to look for knowledge but to um, have uh, to believe in faith and it was the Christianity like um, we have to understand that the pagans uh, were um, very scientific people. And uh, they developed extremely um, sophisticated uses of solar energy where all of Greece was uh, solar heated. Uh, they also uh, used mirrors uh, to light their fires. Uh, but when Christianity came along, uh, they believed that um, all this should be um, obliterated and people should um, worship faith rather than knowledge. So uh, as uh, the uh, great uh, killing of Hypatia, uh, a female uh, geometrician, uh, just shows this uh, prejudice and also the burning of the Alexandrian library. And ironically, it was the Muslims who saved all this knowledge.
3: Um, we should also say that um, any kind of technology is always uh, interesting to people of all faiths and sometimes even of no faiths uh, in terms of whether or not you can make a really good weapon about it. So, John Perlin, that's another thing that we know happened historically, right? There were, there was almost a solar arms race. Can we figure out some way to use the sun and mirrors so we can set the other people on fire?
1: Well, well, yeah, what happened was we had a similar uh, situation we have today where we had uh, Islam um, and uh, Christianity at uh, loggerheads. And uh, the early uh, scholars uh, right before the Renaissance saw that the uh, Muslims uh, knew all about burning mirrors, and they uh, – decided that those Muslims could use the burning mirrors to uh, destroy the Western world. It was the weapon of the Antichrist. So therefore, we had to gain the knowledge, and we had to fight back with the greatest weapon possible, the sun.
3: Um, so, John Grimm, I just want to come back and say, is this, um, is this over the, the, the notion of sun worship? I mean, are there still—my sense is that the, the Inuit uh, may still engage in, in something that we would, rec- we would recognize as sun worship, and certainly uh, aspects of the Japanese Shinto religion uh, still do worship the sun in a way that we would call something like sun worship.
4: Yes I find the term worship not so helpful in right. the uh, context of native american peoples because it's uh it suggests a distancing again or a, a, a lowering a situating the human as inferior to some uh, divine being but that sense of relationship or reverence or respect uh, in my experience among say crow people uh, with regard to the sun Dance, where that relationship to the sun is important in that ritual and it's it's exploring the questions of that relationship. It's probing what is uh, what's experienced in this ceremony where a sacrifice is undertaken and one deprives oneself in order to reflect upon personal, social, ecological, and cosmological relationships. So it's a it is a good question, and certainly in the Shinto context, yes, the uh, sense the old myth of Amaterasu appearing out of the cave. And the the creation of reality in this uh, mythic context, and the emperors of Japan related to Amaterasu, and the Ise Shrine activities still incorporating mm-hmm. that that perspective that the sun is a, is a central. Uh, focus of this reverence and re- respect in, in Japan today.
3: Right, so first of the year uh, you can still see a ceremony like that there, and of course, you know, I'm always fascinated uh, as a person of Irish heritage that at Newgrange to this day, they, you know, exactly. you, have, you, you can enter a lottery uh, so that you get to be inside uh, this ancient structure on, on the day that the solstice, uh, the, the sun actually slants right in for one day and fills up this yes. chamber with light, which is like an amazing It sort of goes back to John Perlin's point, too, about how long we've been engaged with the sun uh, in pretty interesting ways. We're going to have to take a quick break here. And I want to thank uh, John Grimm so much for joining us. Uh, There's so much more that we could pick his brain for if we had a two hour show. Uh, John Grimm, professor at Yale University and an expert on religion and ecology. When we come back, more of John Perlin. uh, And you're also going to meet uh, somebody who's looking at a different way, maybe, to interact with the the sun.
2: more segment to go and then this show is going to collapse into a white dwarf and die I'm just saying today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me Kion Wolf our intern is Esther Shitu Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and he appeared in the intro the part of Bill Curry was played by John Lithgow you can find this episode on WNPR.org slash Colin or subscribe to us on iTunes Stitcher or TuneIn and now Back to Colin
3: and back to the sun. Uh, we're still talking to John Perlin uh, about the sun's energetic potential uh, and our relationship with it. A little bit later in this segment, we're going to talk to Dr. Christina Agapakis, uh, biologist, writer, and artist, interested in biotechnology, uh, and she is going to talk about whether or not human beings could become, in any sense, a little bit more photosynthetic. But John Perlin is a physicist at UCLA Santa, Santa Barbara, the author of "Let It Shine," the six thousand year old story of or six thousand year story of solar. Energy. So John Perlin, it does seem a little odd, knowing what we know about the sun and knowing that, in fact, for 6,000 years, uh, at least passively and, and, and then more and more creatively, uh, humankind has been aware of what the sun could do. We haven't come further. Um, I think it's in your book that in the late 19th century, even as cities became electrified in ways that made them more vulnerable to solar flares, there were very early experiments, I think, with rooftop photovoltaics. Can that possibly be true that uh, the notion, however primitive, of a photovoltaic storage system is that old?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, uh, correct uh, what you said about, uh, well, we just uh, did uh, passive. Uh, Passive uh, is one of the uh, basic ways we can save so much, um, uh, avoid so much greenhouse gases by just building correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have the ancients to teach us that relevancy where all the Greek cities were solar cities, where all the Roman baths were heated uh, by the uh, sun. Just because it's it's simple, it's not trivial. Um, but also to get back to the uh, photovoltaics, uh, also the uh, first um, solar module uh, was uh, built in 1873. Um, uh, and um, the greatest scientist of the time, James Maxwell Clark, uh, said this was one of the most promising areas of science to study, and this is 1876. And so it wasn't primitive. It was basically the foundations for today's uh, solar cells.
3: That's just amazing. So, But but then why, why aren't we more solar today? I mean, it's this infinite resource or nearly infinite resource for us. Why aren't we more solar-powered in
1: 2016? Well, actually, we're uh, being very... Um, Ethnocentric, you might say, just because in the United States a lot hasn't happened. Uh, you take China, for example, where they've been building houses for the last 6,000 years uh, to make optimum use of the sun for heating, which is, I think, about 40% of our. Um, Energy consumption, and also about 60 million uh, solar water heaters have been installed in China uh, to this day, which is a technology that began in the United States in uh, 1891. So, basically, uh, about um, equivalent of possibly 300 nuclear power plants uh, uh, are in use today in China, for example, using the sun. So just because it's not happening as much in America does not mean it's not happening in the world.
3: Great point. Uh, John Perlin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we Our time is limited here, and we, we don't want to deprive ourselves of Christina Agapakis, a biologer, writer, biologist, writer, and artist interested in biotechnology. She's the creative director uh, at Ginkgo Bioworks, an organism design company. So um, even in saying your title, I think I may have uh, used some terms that might mildly confuse our listenership uh, when we talk about organism design. Well, I guess what we should we should get down to under brass tacks, uh, Christina Agapakis, and say we've been talking about solar energy through things like full photovoltaic cells, but is there a way to engineer human beings so that they use the sun better?
5: Uh, in a short answer, no. But
3: <laughs> All right, you can go then.
5: <laughs> but there is a lot of really interesting engineering or, or ways that you might think about biotechnologies that can uh, improve our symbiotic relationship with with solar powered biology, which is plants and photosynthesis. So uh, I think that there there's many ways that you can, you can think about this question, but yeah, to, to start off, you know, we, we've been in a way symbiotic with, with plants for quite, a, like, quite some time. We grow plants, we've domesticated them. We live and we, we use these plants to access the
3: power of the sun. So, there have been experiments, right, to see whether an organism that isn't photosynthetic could uh, at least um, live with injections or introductions of photosynthetic materials. How's that gone? Exactly.
5: So, when I was a graduate student, uh, we were, I was very excited by the idea of symbiosis with photosynthetic microorganisms. So, when you look inside of plant cells, what makes them photosynthetic, what powers them, is these chloroplasts. Um, which were once upon a time uh, free-living bacteria, which had gotten inside of cells and evolved together to create this powerful photosynthetic apparatus inside plants. And so we asked, could we kind of recreate that evolutionary story by taking bacteria that are photosynthetic and injecting them into animal cells? What would happen? You know, what could we, you know, know, we can imagine, well, maybe it's possible to to have kind of a photosynthetic cell because you've added these uh, bacteria in them. And I think we started doing some calculations and found basically you'd have to stuff the animal cells full of the bacteria uh, to actually get enough energy. So I don't think that we're going to get all of our energy from photosynthesis uh, from by having symbiotic chloroplasts, but uh, it is possible to inject these bacteria inside animal cells. And what happened in our experiment is basically nothing. <laughs> they, they lived just fine together for a little while, uh, but they didn't They didn't power the cell. So I think it was an interesting kind of evolutionary question, uh, but not really a solution to any power needs.
3: Right. So, I mean, the solution to power needs we might be thinking about, obviously, if we head toward a time of world food shortages and things like that, it would be terrific if we could be more photosynthetic. But in order to do that, first of all, Don't try any of this at home. All right. Don't inject yourself with photosynthetic bacteria. Don't do anything like that. We'll tell you here on the Colin McEnroe show when it's time to do that. But it would be we'd have a better chance, probably, if we could also evolve or change, Christina, to become more leaf shaped. Right. I mean, you've got to have the surface area. Right.
5: So, yeah, I think when you start thinking about plants and the difference between plants and animals, or or if you wanted to become photosynthetic, you know, first, you know, you wouldn't want to use as much energy because it takes a lot of energy to move around and to be an animal, do animal things. So you might start sort of being more still and stationary so you can uh, spend more time absorbing sunlight. Uh, and then you want to think about, well, you need to maximize your surface area and the ratio of your surface area to your volume. So maybe you'll start creating some leafy protrusions uh, that can kind of create more surface area that would be photosynthetic, have more access to the sun. Eventually, if you kind of play this tape forward, you've turned humans into, into trees. And so, yeah, in, in order for humans to be photosynthetic, there's quite a, a few changes that you'd have to go to. and you'd start to look much more like a plant than like, a, like an animal.
3: I think you're just describing Florida right now. But, um, <laughs> there, there, I mean, there are sea slugs, right, that are essentially photosynthetic?
5: So, so that's actually a really great uh, an example, right? So there are these really interesting animals. Uh, they're called Elysia chlorotica. They're sea slugs, and uh, early on in their, their life cycle, they eat algae, and they take the chloroplasts out of the algae cells, and they incorporate them into their own cells. And so these, these uh, slugs become green, and they don't move very much, and they actually kind of look a lot like a leaf, uh, but, they're, but they're an animal. They're an invertebrate. And so there's there's still some controversy in the field whether or not they're actually photosynthetic and how much of their energy they might be getting from the sun. Uh, but, but yeah, if you look at them, they actually have evolved to be quite leaf-like rather than animal-like with this kind of photosynthetic symbiosis.
3: Christina, got a, about a minute left. Um, you know, probably we're not going to become uh, leaves or sea slugs, but we might become more transhuman as, as things go on. Uh, Probably the greater likelihood is we might have photosynthetic skin patches or something like that that would do something, right?
5: so i think there's there's a lot of really interesting speculation and research that's being done in into wearables and and into technologies that can interface with our skin directly and sometimes those are biosensors things that we can use biological organisms that can interact with our skin in a way so if you can ask why, what is it was it a photosynthetic patch you know that's an interesting question and i think a, a really interesting way to speculate and explore for the future
3: yeah it might have some kind of medical applications or just a way of telling our body to do something else or something yeah. like- switch Maybe
5: wound healing or or um there's
3: many, many options, many ways many ways to explore. All right. So uh, we have ended uh, on, uh, on the most forward-looking note we could possibly think of, uh, changing the design of the human organism somehow to make it interact more successfully with the sun. That was Christina Agapakis. Special thanks to Josh Nalea for producing today's show. And if anybody gets a transhuman solar skin patch here at WNPR, it'll be Kayon-Wolf, our technical director.
2: in <laughs> the Saturn, how do you think it reflects on me if your rings are drooping? Get it together! Son? What is it, Mercury? We're tired of your abuse. What about our needs? Not everything revolves around you. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I thought.